Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. McCloskey, and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. Abraham Fluxstrom was born November 13, 1866. He was the sixth of nine children born to Morris and Esther, seven boys named in order Jacob, Henry, Isidore, Simon, Bernard, Abraham, and Washington. Two girls, Mary and Gertrude, followed. Morris owned and operated a dry goods store in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky until 1862. When he was forced to close it due to the war, he moved to Louisville and joined a friend in a hat shop. In 1783, when Abraham was 17, with some financial help from his older brother Jacob, who owned a pharmacy, Abraham entered Johns Hopkins University. He graduated two years later with a degree in the classics. After teaching at his high school alma mater for four years, he opened a private school designed to prepare students for college. His school used experimental teaching techniques. There were no examinations, records, or reports. It was both a financial and a social success. In 1898, he married a former student, Anne Laser Crawford, a teacher and successful playwright who had recently graduated from Vassar. Flexner combined the profits from one of her plays and the sale of his school to attend Harvard for a year. After graduating with a master's in psychology, he pursued additional studies in Berlin and Heidelberg. In 1908, while he was in Europe, he wrote an article disparaging the quality of higher education in the United States. In 1910, Henry Pritchard, the president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, read Flexner's article and invited him to do some research for the Foundation on the American Educational System, with particular interest in medical training. In 1912, Flexner was appointed secretary to the General Education Board, also known as the GEB, a non-governmental entity chartered by Congress to improve education in the nation. The agency was funded by private donations, mostly through the Rockefeller Foundation. Under his direction, the GEB promoted high school and college-level education reform throughout the country. After 21 years with the GEB and Rockefeller Foundations, Flexner was asked to establish the Institute for Advanced Study, also known as the IAS, in Princeton, New Jersey. One of the first researchers Flexner brought to the IAS was Albert Einstein. Over the years, the IAS faculty has included around 34 Nobel laureates. It continues to be an independent educational research facility with close ties to several highly respected universities, including both Rutgers and Princeton. Flexner retired from the IAS in 1939, and in 1956, at the youthful age of 90, he was honored with the Frank H. Leahy Memorial Award for Outstanding Leadership in Medical Education. One of the speakers at the presentation stated that Abraham Flexner made the greatest single contribution that had ever been made to the advancement of medical education in America. Flexner's contribution to medical education is just one part of the development of the medical industry we depend on today. Other factors include the growth of medical specialization, the maturing of clinical and hospital treatments, the evolution of medical licensing, and the growth of medical insurance. But the root of all these changes was in the acceptance of germ theory. Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch's work with germ theory was a seminal event in the history of medicine. Based on their discoveries, between 1890 and 1900, vaccines were developed for cholera, anthrax, rabies, typhoid fever, the plague, diphtheria, and tetanus. In 1867, just six years after Pasteur published his seminal work on the subject, germ theory encouraged Joseph Lister to promote the idea of performing surgery in a sterile environment. He taught a procedure that used carbolic acid, now known as phenol, to sterilize instruments. 
His system reduced post-operative complications, redefined surgical procedures, and gave Lister the moniker of the father of modern surgery. New inventions like that of Wilhelm Conrad Rotgen changed methods for diagnosing and treating diseases ranging from osteoporosis to lung cancer. A physics professor at the University of Munich in 1895, Rotgen announced the existence of x-rays. Within six months of reporting his discovery, x-ray machines were found in physicians and dentist offices throughout Europe. I should note that others had noticed the phenomenon before Rotgen's announcement. Arthur Goodspeed, an American physicist, was one of them. However, Rotgen is credited with the discovery because he identified x-rays source and effects and then published his findings. The exponential growth in medical knowledge these types of discoveries exemplify changed the practice of medicine, creating the modern medical industry we rely on today. Before the advent of germ theory, medical education was most often an apprentice-based system where an interested student learned as he observed procedures and discussed medical books with a practicing physician. Eventually, the physician would have the student perform procedures under his observation. When the student felt he had learned what he could learn from that physician, he would either open his own practice or go to another physician and learn what he could from them. The first medical school along the eastern seaboard was started in the 1760s. It began when a few faculty members at the College of Philadelphia started offering lectures in medical practices. Its beginnings are echoed in the hundreds of for-profit medical schools that were started in the United States over the next 150 years or so. Almost all were started by practicing physicians who joined together to share their differing strengths. Students learned clinical practices with a mentor physician. Each partner lectured on medical theories and practices that best fit with their personal strengths and interests. Instead of tuition, students paid the lecturer directly at the start of each presentation. Often, these schools were relatively short-lived because the partners fought over various professional practices. These types of medical schools sometimes offered classes on anatomy and physiology, but few had chemistry or anatomy labs. Anatomy labs were particularly difficult to maintain because it was so hard to keep bodies around for study. Remember, this is the era before refrigeration, so bodies needed to be replaced rather frequently. Furthermore, laws and traditions based on religious and social standards of the day viewed the dissection of human remains as the abuse of a corpse. Traditionally, executed criminals were the main source of legitimate cadavers, but the decline in the use of the death penalty in the late 1700s meant that there were not enough bodies to meet the medical school's demand. So, medical schools were often reduced to body snatching to provide cadavers for their students to study. There is a story of how, in the 1870s, Jacob Flexner helped a faculty member from one of the Louisville Medical Schools snatch two bodies from a local cemetery to use in the school's anatomy lab. When they found that two detectives were on the same ferry they were on, they dumped the bodies in the river to avoid being arrested and fished them out after they landed. As the lack of quality labs and differing topics show, the for-profit medical schools were wildly inconsistent in their curriculum, the quality of their education, and graduation requirements. One of the first things the American Medical Association, or AMA as it is commonly known today, did when it was founded in 1847 was to address the need for educational standards. However, their efforts were unsuccessful until 1910. The single most important factor in improving medical education was a report produced by Abraham Flexner. 
The Flexner Report, as it is known today, reported the findings of an 18-month study of 155 medical schools in the United States and Canada. Called the single most important document in the history of American health care, Flexner castigated the inconsistent entry and graduation requirements of the medical schools of the day. The report also recommended the need for medical schools to use scientific methods in teaching students about the human body, especially using laboratories to teach subjects like chemistry and anatomy. It also called for increased clinical experience before graduation, suggesting that medical schools should be affiliated with hospitals where students could do rounds and work under the supervision of an experienced doctor. Because of the Flexner Report, between 1908 and 1920, almost half of the medical schools closed due to their inability to meet the requirements Flexner called for. Immediately after the report was issued, about 20 schools closed their doors to avoid public humiliation. Over the next decade, another 50 or so went out of business because they either could not afford to set up the labs or they were unable to affiliate with a local hospital for clinical instructions. The Flexner Report established standards that are still the foundation of medical training in the United States. The specialization movement within medicine that grew during the early 20th century had a huge impact on medical education. As scientific discoveries increased, the amount of knowledge simply became too great for any one individual to learn at all, making specialization an integral part of medical care. In some ways, medical schools encouraged specialization as instructors began to give lectures oriented to a specific field. For example, the development of the ophthalmoscope and research into the concept of refraction increased the amount of time medical schools allocated to discussing the diagnosis and treatment of eye diseases. Originally, this kind of specialized coursework was directed at practicing general practitioners. But as medical schools changed their curriculum to fit the requirements of the Flexner Report, instruction became more standardized and focused on scientific methods. The added costs of laboratories and expensive new technologies increased medical school expenses, allowing graduates to justify higher fees than older, less well-trained physicians. Specialization was also popular with medical school students who felt that it was better to become highly knowledgeable and experienced in one facet of medicine than to be mediocre in many areas. Between 1945 and 1965, about 75% of new physicians entered the medical profession as specialists. The increasing complexity of healthcare led staffers that needed more specialized training. The 1920s and 30s began to see the development of physicians' assistants, along with nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, and nurse midwives. The increasing technological aspect of medical care brought a need for personnel with even more specific training to fill roles as lab assistants, x-ray technologists, and like. As managed health care became the norm in the 1980s, these skilled medical workers came to be called allied health professionals. The medical profession did not always appreciate the role of these workers. In the mid-1970s, doctors working at one hospital complained about an administrator's decision to allow certified nurse midwives to handle deliveries in its maternity wing. The complaint was not so much about the midwives per se, but about the possibility that advanced practice nurses and allied health professionals might start taking income away from the physicians. The growth of specialties and the increasing use of technology contributed to a shift in the provision of medical care. Traditionally, medicine had been provided in an individual's home. 
the image of a physician riding up to a farmhouse on his horse or in his surrey with his little black bag and the sage wisdom of experience is one facet of the good old days we often wish we could return to however the increase in technology like the development of complex equipment for eye exams the need for refrigerated drugs scales for weighing babies and the like encouraged the use of places where patients came to the doctor instead of the doctor going to the patient also because the doctors would not have to spend time on the road between patients he could see more patients each day increasing both the treatments he could provide and the size of his pocketbook the downside of this change was the doctors no longer saw the living conditions of their patients firsthand some have even decried this shift from social to technological based medicine as one that changed the role of the physician from that of a counselor to that of a technocrat it did not take long for the doctors to see that some patients needed more care than a brief office visit. Sometimes they needed overnight attention. So many of the rural clinics, like Dr. Harold Boyers, whose home and office now house the Arkansas Country Doctors Museum, turned to, into hospitals. The proliferation of small private hospitals in the 1930s and 40s represents another important shift in medical care into the early 1900s most hospitals were publicly supported and were designed to treat the poor and indigent except in rare instances those with means were treated in their own home as the clinical system gained greater influence hospitals shifted from a welfare-esque institution to financially sound businesses that focused on the health needs of middle and upper classes furthermore as technology became more complex and therefore more expensive access to it was limited to larger institutions with broader financial foundations this charge also contributed to the rise of medical insurance also as roads improved and automobiles flourished people were better able to get to the larger often more distant facilities the hill burton act represents another seminal movement in the united states health care Enacted in 1946, it provided federal matching funds to construct hospitals in rural counties. Facilities the program financed had to be available to all without regard to race. In a return to the original purposes of government-funded hospitals to provide care to the poor and indigent, Hilburton-funded hospitals had to provide their services free to the needy. Although not medically related, the act also marked an important step in the history of government grant activities because it was one of the first federal-to-state grant programs that used a matching fund formula. I explained earlier how the growth of health insurance grew out of the shift from small local hospitals to larger regional facilities. This evolution started in the early 1900s in larger urban centers. It was prompted by heavy industries that sought to reduce employee absenteeism for example, in 1910, the Western Clinic in Tacoma, Washington, began offering an early form of medical insurance when it started to offer a prepaid medical program. Companies or individuals who joined paid 50 cents per month per person in return for a promise that they would only go to the Western Clinic for their medical needs. It is considered the first program of its kind in the United States. In 1929, Dr. Justin Ford Kimball, an administrator at Baylor University's Dallas, Texas Hospital, noticed that many of the hospital's delinquent bills were from teachers who worked for local school districts. So, he developed a plan where teachers who paid the hospital 50 cents per month were promised that, when they needed it, hospitalization costs would be covered 100% for up to 21 days. Over the next five years, the plan spread to 11 states. It adopted the name Blue Cross in 1934. 
One of the earliest federal forays into health care funding was the Emergency Maternity and Infant Care, or EMIC, program. Although test programs had been operating since 1941, in 1943, Congress formally authorized it at the behest of the Children's Bureau. The EMIC program was designed to provide medical care for soldiers, wives, and infant children. It had a profound effect on small for-profit hospitals. Instead of a prepaid program, EMIC reimbursed hospitals for the care of mother and child. Because it was reimbursable, hospitals had to present itemized bills to the state to be paid. Doctors were not used to having to itemize expenses. Consequently, as the state reviewed their invoices, they often found unacceptable expenses. For example, one doctor included the alimony he paid to his former wife as a fixed cost from the maternity care he gave to soldiers' wives. When the state refused to pay costs like those, many hospitals lost the government business and were forced to close their doors. In the early 1900s, works like Fletchner's report gave medical education a standard to measure itself by, and organizations like the AMA provided ethical standards for physicians to use to manage their practices. However, the general public lacked the resources to judge whether a given physician was a well-educated, competent doctor or simply a quack or charlatan. Government was viewed as the only real source the public could trust to ensure their safety, if not their good health. The first recognized effort at a physician licensing program was in 1760 when the New York Colonial Assembly enacted a medical licensure law. For a variety of reasons, it was generally ignored. From that date through the early 1800s, various states established similar laws, but most of them were limited to ensuring that fees were in line with other physicians in the area. These generally fell into disuse during the second quarter of the century when alternative medical practices like Thompsonian medicine, eclectism, and homeopathy began to compete with traditional medicine. Most felt that the increased competition established a self-enforcing free market system. When it was founded in 1847, the AMA's first two agenda items were raising the quality of medical education and gaining the public's trust through state licensing. In connection with the rise of industrialization during the 1870s, state agencies revisited medical licensing. Most states required applicants to demonstrate competency in two ways. They first had to demonstrate some formal education in the field with a diploma from a recognized medical school. This element may have contributed to the chaotic system of for-profit medical schools that led to the Flexner Report. Second, they had to pass a state exam designed to show that the applicant had a basic understanding of the principles of medicine as they were known at the time. Licensure was not limited to orthodox or allopathic medicine. Practitioners of Thompsonism and homeopathy each had their own state-written licensure exams, nor were the laws written to restrict medical care to traditional medicine. Many laws, like the one written in Arkansas in 1913, specifically stated that they were not designed to restrict the public's choice of medical care. Later, clauses were added that provided for license suspensions and continuing education. I think these licensure laws made the medical industry one of, if not the, first industry to experience direct government oversight in the United States. As the provision of medical care increased in complexity, licensing laws also expanded to include support staff like nurses, midwives, physicians' assistants, and allied health professionals. 
Although Orthodox medicine adopted some elements of Thompsonism and homeopathic healing is still practiced, the AMA's efforts transformed the medical industry into the de facto source of knowledge and care for all things related to human biology that it is today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.